and welcome to a chilly edition of The Learning Curve, at least up here in Beantown, it's chilly, but we've got a great hot episode for you. Uh, uh, <laughs> the wonderful Jason Bedrick coming from the warm state of Arizona is going to be with us today. How are you doing, Bob? Oh, good. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I, I'm well, a little, a little chilly, I'll say. Okay. But other than that, I'm very, very excited for this, our 11th edition, our 11th episode of The Learning Curve. So we've got a couple of pretty interesting stories of the week this week, Bob. I think we will start with a story out of, you, you know I'm pretty biased towards a story out of Michigan, but um, sounds the like- ancestral, oh, The ancestral, the ancestral homeland. It's, well, it's the Stillings ancestral yeah, homeland. Yeah, the Stillings ancestral, right, the Kendalls are Argentinian. It's that's it's a much oh. warmer place. Yeah. But uh, a new Michigan model um, shows promising signs for students in struggling schools, but can it work in the long term? This from educationviews.org. So this is, of course, <laughs> a story of turnaround, but an interesting one in that. This article talks about the Michigan Partnership Partnership Model, excuse me, designed in 2017 to improve the state's lowest performing schools. What is that? Maybe most of them, unfortunately. So we're talking 54,000 students. So, you know, we've read a lot about turnaround models, especially in the past 15 years. But they say that what makes this one different is that it's the state that is holding schools accountable, as they should, but that the, the school districts themselves are in charge of sort of writing the redesign plan, writing the turnaround plan, and implementing the turnaround plan. So one might ask the question, Bob, why would you have those that are already not doing a good job, um, who maybe don't know what they're doing, in charge of their own improvement? Thank you. And- uh, you know, I, I, so my, all I needed to read was the line uh, in the story that said, what makes this program different than past school improvement strategies set by the state is that the districts are in charge, said William Pearson. Director of the Office of Partnership Districts, OPD. I'm sure it's a wonderful office with like plants and stuff and some nice windows. And they probably have conference rooms where they sit and drink coffee and talk about stuff. Right. To me, this uh, is this this kind of living in a bubble ought to get like the get smart, smart cone of silence installed over Mr. Pearson, you know, to create his recreate his logic, just as you've uh, asserted that when a dis- this is what this logic says. If a district runs a school so terribly that it's widely considered chronically failing a disaster dropout factory, instead of outside state-run bureaucrats coming in to fix the school, which hasn't worked very well in the past, what do we do? Oh, this new ingenious plan brilliantly empowers the same Keystone cops who ruined the school in the first place to have more power to take over. That, that, that'll, that'll do it. Well, wait, let me push back, Bob, because what if those Keystone cops actually came up with a good turnaround plan that said, we're going to get rid of 50%. We don't know what the content of these plans are, but we do know is that we have results, which is why accountability works. One more thing that I'm going to say on this is that this article says that 56% of the schools here that are in turnaround status are charter schools, which makes me once again question the quality of Michigan's charter school law, because if they had a good one, charter schools would not be in the failing category because they would be closing. I think it's only 21% of the students, though, even though it's a larger percentage of the schools because the charter schools tend to be smaller. Okay, but uh, nevertheless, this this epic study they're crowing about shows many of these schools have seen, quote, modest but potentially positive results in most, if not all, of these categories in the first year of the program. Okay. 
uh, so you know, you're, you're predicting failure and I am, I'm giving us a little bit of hope. Okay. But moving and, and, on. And yet these Detroit public schools that ranked last in the country. Nowhere to go but up. 27 True urban that. areas. But you know what, should, Bob? Up is better than flat. They said it wasn't all bad news. <laughs> some of the greatest improvements uh, compared to other near, even we're, we're still last, but their rate of improvement last. was slightly better than some other places. All right, go ahead. Listen, one more, one more kid reading, one at a time. Uh, moving on to another favorite state of ours, oh, Texas. And you'll remember, Bob, that just very recently, Texas made a lot of headlines placing this, what we're calling a de facto cap on the special education services that districts were providing, meaning that basically lots of kids were being denied the special education services that are their due under federal law. And uh, Texas found itself out of compliance and in a lot of trouble. So this article follows up and tells us um, what, what the federal government is finding about about Texas uh, trying to turn around this situation. And among the most recent findings are that, number one, the Texas Education Agency has failed to deliver on, re- deliver on resources it promised to parents, including the literature explaining their rights around special education, that the agency has not yet provided districts with guidance on how to provide makeup services to students who were previously denied aid, and that at least one regional education center told districts they would receive a grace period from the TEA if they did not comply with the state's timelines for providing services. So this out of the Houston Chronicle, Bob, I mean, this is just when we talk about the refusal of special education services for students, can we imagine a more disgusting scenario? Like, so the most vulnerable of kids in our school systems, and basically not only are they being denied services in the first place, but this is just like, we're in no rush to fix the situation. What do you think? I have a, I have a somewhat different take on this. So so Texas said you over 10 years ago that 8.5% would be the number, the cap, because school get more money, they get more money the more kids they classify as special needs. So some states, Texas wasn't the only one. Oregon was another. Some states were worried about schools just classifying more and more and more kids as special ed, so they'd get more and more money. So Texas said, but 8.5%. Well, the national average is 14%. So the feds have said, oh, you're too low at 8.5%. And Texas has now raised it from, uh, it had been, I guess, the 2015-16 school year. It was eight. They they went from 8.5 to 8.7% special needs. Now they're up to 9.8%. But they say, okay, we agree. We're still not in compliance. All right. So I say, what do I say? I know people, I know you want to know, Kara. (laughs) No, to be sure, to be sure, some disabilities, as you you know, are certainly. Uh, I'm not questioning whether there uh, there's absolute uh, need for kids. The, to, to your point, absolutely, there's all kinds of need, and I'm sure much of much of the need uh, that you're talking about is not met. But it's also, and some disabilities are absolutely verifiable objectively. Tests for disabilities like blindness, disabilities like deafness, but there is no test. For a student to confirm ADHD, it does not exist. There is no test to confirm emotionally disturbed, which is one of the uh, categories, one of, uh, up to 14 categories of special needs that kids are, are, are classified as. No test for that. Writers of these news stories and the policymakers here consistently, they, it's almost as if they're craving this uh, special needs industrial complex, like jargon, intramural jargon. Like they don't want to 
admit that these things are subjective because it's part of an expert worship culture. And okay, so what, we, what do we all know? Oh, we're all sophisticated people who know 14% is the correct percentage of special needs classification nationally. How do we know that? I'm sure Moses had that carved on a rock that 14% was in the Old Testament as the right number of special needs. Oh, you're at 8.5%. That's obviously far too low. Now, Bob, my friend, I have to stop you there because I'm going to challenge you to go in and become a teacher at a school with children with very complex needs. And yet I would agree with you. I think you're right. This, these arbitrary percentages. And that's part of what those who hold schools accountable have to do to look at averages and say, well, how much and what can we know? But the idea that there isn't a test for ADHD, and I don't know that. I think a lot of uh, therapists and teachers might tell you that there are absolutely some indicators of children with ADHD. And no ED. But, no but, but, but on top of this, the, the thing, the more disturbing thing here for me from the parental point of view is that you've got school districts that aren't even giving parents the right information, the information that they need to navigate what is a horribly complex system in any That could, that could be true. I would just say that just information. Just to give your kid the, the, the chance yeah. at an evaluation. That information, I would say, is virtually infinite but in here here is my uh, this is what i this is my troll repellent for this part i'm not saying there aren't students with special needs who are deserving of services they aren't getting i'm not saying te texas doesn't have unclassified students in this regard that ought to be classified. I am saying there can be a negative stigma to being classified as special needs. I am Absolutely. saying there are claims of racism around allegations of overclassifications of special needs. Absolutely. And I am saying that this hard line in the sand is ultimately not a hard line. It is artificial. The truth is all students have special needs. Why? Because all students have special talents. And those talents for all need to be nurtured individually. It's what the homeschooling trend, the microschooling trend, the online schooling trends all understand that all kids are special and have special talents and therefore special needs. And American Absolutely. education is wedded to this rigorous, fake, fake defined line in the sand about your classification percentage is the wrong percentage, Texas. So we're going to send in a bunch of bureaucrats to change it. So you and that's may what have do. a point there, my friend, but let's also recognize that as much as I am for customized education, the vast majority of students in this country are in district schools and it simply takes, and yes, students have different talents. Students also have different needs and different level of needs. And it is necessary that to fund the students who have more complex needs so that they can get the services they deserve. And until we come up with a better system, right, this, uh, this argument that, oh, well, if we wait funding too much for the kids who need it, we're simply going to incent schools to overclassify. There has to be a better answer to serve the vast majority of kids that with special educational needs that are in our public school systems. Now, Moving on, my friend, our final article. And this one, I think I can tell you're going to have a lot of fun with this. So I'm pretty eager to hear your take, Bob. Oh, good. Um, this, this from Yahoo, right? That the current overall teacher confidence index, the teacher confidence index stands at 43 on a scale of zero to 100. So here's, here's a big surprise for you, Bob. Teacher oh, morale in this country is low. There has been a significant decrease in optimism, says that says Jack Lynch, the CEO of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, quoted in this article. Then he says that this shows the mounting pressures put on teachers have reached a tipping point. Now, I'm sorry, I'm sounding a little bit tongue in cheek because I think that this is quite an interesting index. Clearly, over the past few years, we have seen a lot of unrest among teachers and um, and the profession of teaching is um 
is is it, some might say coming apart at the seams. I'm I'm curious to know your take. It's it's a classic case of of confusing a symptom with an underlying problem. In other words, so so yeah, from fifty percent down to thirty four percent in teacher optimism in one year. Okay, I guess uh, uh, to me. This is kind of like a, like a union-funded mirage. It, to me, it's like the old movies when the people in the desert were dying of thirst and they'd see this oasis mirage in the distance, but no matter how much farther they walked, the oasis that never appeared, right? That oasis is sufficient teacher salary. That's the oasis. No matter how far you go to it, it never arrives. There's never sufficient teacher salary. It's the average Chicago teacher we just learned is going to be make is going to be a hundred thousand dollars. That's the it's going to be the average teacher, not just the, the you know that's actually the that's the average teacher regardless of performance. In other words, far more than the average Chicagoan. With and, and of course they have pension and health benefits in terms of their salaries built in. So what would make teachers actually happier and more optimistic? I think more creative control of their classrooms. I think fewer top-down dictates from states and districts that are, you know, and and, and let principals be, be empowered to make intelligent decisions about what the, the the teachers do, or let them have the oversight rather than these states and districts. And that will make the students happier too. That you want to increase optimism, you you do those things first, but there's no money in messaging that. The money is in messaging your all of your problem is insufficient salary, poor unoptimistic, pessimistic teacher, poor, poor pessimistic teacher. If you just had more money and salary, then you'd be happy and optimistic. That's where the money is, but that's not where the problem is. You know what, Bob? I think we have found something we agree on. I think that your recommendation <laughs> on this one is spot on. Our special learning curve interview with Jason Bedrick right after this. Now delighted to be joined on the on the Learning Curve podcast by the great Jason Bedrick, director of policy at Ed Choice, and also co-editor of an upcoming book uh, with the working title being "Yeshivas versus the State of New York: A Case Study in Religious Liberty in Education." And Jason, thank you for being our guest on the Learning Curve. Thank you for having me on the podcast. As I've been saying all over social media, this is my favorite new education podcast and one of my favorite podcasts of all. We so thank you very much for that, Jason. Thank you. What tremendous good judgment you are proving with that observation. As Bob calls it good judgment, I would say I also like your Ed Choice podcast, too, oh, which well, you, you frequently much. join. So well, I am an I am an avid listener. Thank Indeed. You. Again, a very good point. Um, so let's let's get right to it. You know, some might say, oh, if I'm not in the state of New York, why should I care about a book called Yeshivas versus the state of New York? If I'm not Jewish, why should I care about a book called Yeshivas versus the state of New York? And so tell us briefly what the premise of the book is and why people should care who may not be in that Venn diagram of of subgroups. Well, that's a great question. Uh, the The case in New York has uh, – it, it's parochial in some sense in that it's primarily about not just yeshivas but a particular variety of yeshivas. Yeshivas are uh, Orthodox Jewish day schools and here we're talking about uh, Haredi Orthodox, uh, also sometimes in the media called ultra-Orthodox, so that not, not a term favored by the community, uh, that – uh, are being accused of not providing a substantially equivalent education to what is pro provided at the public schools as is required by law. If I uh, just that's an amazing just accusation to begin with. Just sorry to interrupt, but you're not ex you're not close enough 
to many of our failing traditional public schools to be acceptable. So this is a, tr- a problem for the private, some of these private schools in, in New York, right? Like equivalency is presented as some sort of standard to which the schools should aspire. Right. And so obviously this, this is a, an issue that's affecting actually a very small number of families. There, there were uh, accusations about 39 yeshivas. Uh, the department looked into it. Uh, they ended up concluding that nine were outside of the scope of, uh, of the investigation because they either were uh, institutes of higher learning uh, or they had closed down years ago or just simply never existed. Uh, but there were 30 out of 415, there were uh, 30 that they were looking at. Uh, well, actually, it's, that's statewide. There's 275 citywide. Uh, of those, they visited half. They found that there was some real learning going on there. They had adopted some new, more rigorous, uh, rigorous secular curriculum. Uh, but this is not just about the yeshivas. It's really a test case uh, for uh, broader issues uh, related to parental control, parental rights in education, when there's a disagreement between state or city education officials and parents over what's in the best interest of a child, who has the final say and when. And so we, we can think in education policy about some of the landmark cases, uh, uh, for example, um, the Yoder decision, uh, Wisconsin v. Yoder, which concerned whether or not Amish families could opt out of the compulsory education law uh, for high school students that would instead basically be learning a trade, learning how to work on the farm. And uh, the Supreme Court said that, yes, they could. Uh, or even uh, early, a little earlier than that, uh, Pierce v. the Society of Sisters, where uh, the KKK had successfully lobbied the government to outlaw private education, essentially outlawing Catholic education, which the KKK objected to. Uh, and the the Society of Sisters, a Catholic group that ran private schools, uh, you know, private religious schools, uh, sued for their right to uh, educate uh, children at these schools. And the U.S. Supreme Court famously said that uh, the child is not a mere creature of the state, uh, that parents have certain rights and responsibilities when it comes to education. So this is sort of uh, this test case is the modern version, in my view, of those previous test cases. And so how this is resolved, I think, has uh, implications far outside of New York City or the Jewish community. Jason, I'm wondering if you, um, in the course of uh, doing the research for this book or just generally, if you've, if you've talked to parents about these issues. So as you point out, it's this constant tension between, you know, um, the who gets to direct the upbringing of the child. And, you know, we often hear people say, oh, well, yeah, of course, parent involvement great is great and parent engagement is great. But what you're saying here is that the state's saying, well, yeah, but, you know, only to a point, and maybe parents don't actually know best. So in your work and in your research, what do you see about the impact of, um, of parents and how they choose and what that says about indicators of school quality? Absolutely. I, I've spoken uh, to dozens of families that are sending their children to yeshivas. Uh, I myself uh, send my child to a yeshiva. Three of my four children, uh, one's in preschool, but three of the four go to a yeshiva here in Arizona. Uh, and I mean, parents, uh, to Bob's point earlier, 
are not looking for something that is substantially equivalent to what's provided at the public schools. If they wanted what was provided at the public schools, they literally have thousands of options in their own states. But what parents are looking for here is something that is substantially different. Uh, and so it, I think it's important to understand what's actually going on at these schools. Uh, in most of these schools, they start the school day in these yeshivas much earlier uh, than the traditional public schools, and they end much later, sometimes around five o'clock, uh, and then um, sometimes they even come back for evening classes uh, once you're in uh, in high school. Uh, so Kamala Harris would be thrilled to learn about what's going on Yay. in these schools, right? Uh, I know Kara's in favor of that at the very least. Uh, <laughs> but Bob, uh, this is at least, this, these are parents in, in local communities choosing this for themselves, right? This isn't Washington forcing it down their throats. But this is, so this is not like uh, these, these children are not being educated um, in, in the yeshivas. They're being educated very differently. Now, first, I should point out that the vast, the vast majority of the yeshivas are providing a robust secular education. And if you actually look at the New York Regents exams, uh, a number of the top scoring schools in the state are yeshivas uh, that are spending far less time on those subjects than their traditional um, public school peers and yet are outscoring them on these subjects. Yeah. The, so their, their justification is that what if what if these private schools are doing a terrible, terrible job or and not the poor a, parents are simply unaware of it and therefore we as the state or city, we need to be involved to, to monitor whether or yeah, not well, actually, these private... They're not even saying they're doing a terrible job. In, in these cases, the accusations, and I should note that the accusations are coming from, in most cases, um, ex-Haredi uh, adults. So people who grew up in the Haredi community decided as adults to uh, leave the Haredi community and wish that they had had a different education than they had. Uh, many of them went on to college and they found that uh, they felt ill-equipped to to handle college. Now, I should note that even the founder of this this group that filed the challenge uh, against these schools that, that, that uh, was asking the state, actually, I should say, to uh, start the investigation, uh, the founder of the group called Yafid, uh, or Young Advocates for Fair Education, uh, himself ended up graduating from college, summa cum laude, and then went on to get a master's degree at, at a, a city university. So, you know, how much did uh, his background actually hold him back is, is, I think, a question. But what's going on in these schools is that uh, some of them are being accused of spending about 90 minutes a day or less, some cases, um, you know, even a half hour or less uh, on secular education. And they're spending the majority of the day uh, on religious studies, in particular, uh, studying the Talmud, which is like this um, encyclopedic, uh, encyclopedic compendium of Jewish law, history, theology, aphorisms, and more. Uh, and they study it along with commentaries from later sages uh, spanning centuries and continents. And they, they engage in this for hours a day, uh, sometimes in a small group or with their teacher, uh, other times, especially in, in the older grades, uh, just one-on-one -on -one with a partner called a chavrusa. And so this is a text-based study, and they're learning in several languages. Uh, many of the classes are taught in Yiddish. Uh, sometimes the secular classes will be taught in English. Sometimes even those classes are taught in Yiddish. But uh, Talmud study is conducted in Hebrew and Aramaic. 
And so here you have students who are growing up learning. They're, they're being accused in the media of being illiterate because their English language is like ELL learners elsewhere. But uh, they're speaking three suffered. languages. <laughs> right. They're speaking multiple languages, they, including, you know, Aramaic, which is basically a dead language. But they're able to engage in a very high level textual analysis in multiple languages. And so these are skills that can later be applied to other parts of, of their life. Uh, right. You know, and, and even, you know, folks who talk about, uh, you know, Common Core or good reading instruction, you see often a very heavy emphasis on being able to engage with a text and analyze it. This is something, you know, engage in critical thinking. This is something that they are clearly learning in these yeshivas. Yeah. So they're looking for something that's different, but we should take a step back and look at where did this idea of substantial equivalency come from? Um, listeners to this podcast are probably very familiar with the Blaine amendments and the push by the KKK and other nativists, the know-nothings in the late 1800s to marginalize Catholic education uh, to end government support of Catholic schools and only support uh, common schools, the forerunners of the public schools that were at the time non-denominational Protestant de facto. I mean, they were teaching the Bible, but they were and reading the, the Bible, yeah, right, reading the Bible, but the Protestant version of it. They were leading students in prayer, but in prayer that would be that would resonate with whether you were Baptist or Anglican or, uh, or I should say Episcopalian in America uh, or, or Congregationalist, that was fine. But for Catholics, it really wasn't. Uh, the substantial equivalency requirements came from that same era. So, OK, Catholics, you're going to have your own schools, but we want those schools to be substantially equivalent to our schools. We want them to look as close as possible to what we are doing. Just you're doing some Catholic things. And oh, by the way, we're not going to fund them. So this this statute dates back to the same era, and it's it's an issue because if you know we live in a free and pluralistic society, uh, I believe that our education system should respect that freedom and pluralism, and so parents who are looking for something that's substantially different should be uh, they should have the prerogative to do that. Yeah. So so but what as I see it, this is idea of substantial equivalency. Uh, basically is the, you know, it's the, it's the way they get involved. It's the way they kind of get the tentacles into this private, the religious, private religious school sector, uh, you know, undergirded by this idea. We just want to make sure the kids are getting a good education. But then the, it seems to me that this could potentially lead to, you know, that as a guise for much, you know, for, for, for example, if the public schools are teaching sex education a certain way, then substantial equivalency could be interpreted as forcing the private religious schools to teach sex education the same way as the as the public schools. What, could, couldn't it, in other words, be imaginable that these same concepts would be applied to private schools under under the logic you've cited? Yeah, so right now, it seems they're not trying to do that. I mean, to be clear, what they're trying to do is they're saying that you need to teach, uh, I think it's like 15 different uh, subjects. And so they haven't dictated content, uh, content within those subject areas, but they want to empower local public school districts to have the authority to investigate, uh, you know, do schools tours, and potentially even close them down, uh, which means that that parents could be considered uh, their children could be considered truant if they're sending their kids to these schools, uh, which which obviously is, is problematic. But I think you're right. 
even though that's not what they're trying to do now, uh, we can we, we have a chapter in our book by by the great Charles Glenn, uh, professor of you know historian at uh, Boston University emeritus, I should say, and my mentor, uh, I'll say. And, you know, that's right, and, and just an all around fantastic guy, who who has been looking at the trajectory in Europe, and so Europe used to be a place that very strongly respected. Um, pluralism and and parental rights in education. And you actually even see uh, many uh, national constitutions that protect parental rights. But over the last decade plus, you've seen a transformation. Uh, and it's, it's really pulling in two different directions. So part of it is driven by um, secular left-wing progressives who are trying to use the school system to push their values at the expense of other people's values. Uh, and then on the right, you see a backlash to Muslim immigration and a concern about Muslim schools, which, by the way, we've got lots of great research showing that um, children who grow up going to Muslim schools are far less likely to be radicalized than students that are going to um, to, to just the public schools. And, and your book uh, will have a chapter on Muslim schools and Catholic That's schools, right? right? Uh, we have one on Christian schools, not on Catholic schools specifically, and we do have okay. one on, on Muslim schools, that's right, and, and also homeschools. But uh, what we've seen in the last decade plus in, in Europe is a, a turn away from uh, parental rights and religious tolerance and, and freedom and a turn toward more state control. So to your point, in the UK, uh, there's something called Ofsted. It's the Office of Educational Standards. And uh, it's part of their, you know, basically their version of their education department uh, that conducts regular visits of private schools. And there are a number of religious schools, including uh, Christian, Jewish and Muslim schools that have recently been declared uh, insufficient, um, whereas previously they had been given the highest ranking of outstanding. And it's not because of how they're teaching. Uh, it's because of, of what they're teaching. So, for example, there was this one school that uh, they had high-quality teachers. They were doing very well in the national exams. Uh, they were teaching their children to be respectful of people from other faiths and other races and other national origins. Uh, but they were given a failing rating because they were not teaching, quote-unquote, British values. And so what does that mean? Uh, so we're not referring to respect for the monarchy uh, or uh, they, that they weren't teaching about the importance of the Magna Carta or the Glorious Revolution or anything like that. Uh, it was that they were not teaching children uh, that when you grow up, you can be of the opposite sex or that you can marry somebody of the opposite sex. Uh, so they weren't teaching transgenderism. The they sex. weren't teaching of oh, the same sex rather. Sorry. Good, good call. Good catch. Uh, so they weren't, they weren't teaching uh, essentially the secular progressive agenda when it came to um, human sexuality. And uh, so and there that was were, grounds for basically decertifying the schools. Yes, yeah, so none have been, uh, to my knowledge, have been decertified yet, but they were giving failing ratings and uh, okay. warned that if they received multiple failing ratings, they could be decertified, their children could be declared truant, uh, and then it would be considered a, you know, neglect or abuse uh, on behalf of the parents if their children were truant for too long and their, their children could be taken away. That's the implicit threat that uh, the government is making against them when they're trying to force them to conform. 
Uh, and so there's a, a big uproar right now with with a number of uh, religious schools in Britain that are saying, look, you know, this is supposed to be an open and pluralistic society. Uh, there are deep uh, disagreements over ideas of sexual uh, morality and uh, you know the nature of humanity. And so we should be allowed to to teach our children in accordance with our longstanding, deeply held beliefs. Um, you know, we don't want to push our views on your schools, but you also shouldn't be pushing yours on ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a very divisive topic over there right now, and it's it's possible that you know we're just uh, a decade away from that uh, in the United States. So I think that that people should pay attention to how New York resolves this question and which direction they go, because the trajectory could really uh, point to what's coming down the pike. Jason, thank you for that. And and to that point, well, first of all, thank you very much for the international information, which I think is always incredibly instructive. But to the point that you're making and with your EdChoice um, policy director hat on, I wonder if you see, so in, in some sense, you know, so this is a case coming out of New York where we can say they're, they're you know, there's not a lot of choice for parents in terms of private school choice. Um, so right there, not a whole lot of um, uh, pluralism, not a lot of options. Do you see pockets of hope um, for a more pluralistic approach in other places? And if so, where and what would you have us? Um, so you said, you know, let's keep our eyes on New York and, and what comes out of here and the, and the ramifications it could have. But where else should we be looking for the counterexample? Well, I think just school choice broadly is is an example of educational pluralism. And so the the states that I think are the most advanced when it comes to providing uh, not just school, but educational choice uh, would be, you know, Arizona, Florida, uh, Indiana, uh, Ohio. I mean, these these are states that have, have been on the forefront of providing a variety of different options, uh, particularly, you know, you have states like Arizona and Florida now that have education savings accounts, uh, which which empower families to choose educational options even outside of schools. So you can use ESAs to pay for uh school tuition, but also textbooks, tutoring, online courses, uh, homeschool curricula, and then you can roll those funds over from year to year to save for later expenses up to and including in some states college. Uh, so uh, this is an area where where in, instead of, I mean, and Neil McCluskey of the Cato Institute makes this point uh, very well and very often, when you have a system where everybody is assigned to a school based on the location of their home, uh, and that school is then run by what is essentially a political body that is elected, uh, you force parents into a conflict over which values are reflected in those schools. Sometimes they try and end up with the lowest common denominator, but but even there, uh, and, and uh, our good friend uh, Ashley Berner, who's also uh, written a chapter in our book, uh, makes this point as well. Even there, what's not taught uh, is a reflection of, of the values, right? Education is never value neutral. What you do talk about and also what you don't talk about reflect your values. So if you, for example, uh, don't talk about God in school, then you're saying this is either not an important enough topic to be discussed at school or that it's it's something that's not talked about in polite mixed company. Like that's private views for the home, but it's not something that should be brought into the school. So that's also reflective of a certain set of values. 
And so when you have this political system in charge of education, ultimately there is going to be conflict um, among parents and groups and communities over what which values are reflected in those schools. But other nations, actually most countries in Europe and even in, um, you know, in Canada and, and, and much of the developed world made a very different decision than the United States did uh, all those decades ago when they were deciding what to do about Catholic immigration. Um, whereas the United States decided to go in a direction that um, toward educational uniformity, most of these other nations went in the direction of pluralism. Uh, which allowed families to choose schools that did reflect their values and then had the public dollars fund those schools as well. Uh, so, I mean, just think of the Protestant and Catholic situation. Here you have Protestant schools being funded by tax dollars that were collected by Protestant and Catholic families. And what the Catholics say, well, hey, we're funding your Protestant schools. We would just like an equal share for our Catholic schools. The response of the Protestant majority is, oh, no, no. Our schools are for everybody. Your schools are parochial. So you have to pay for our schools, but we're not going to pay for your schools. Uh, and that's essentially, you know, the schools have been um, secularized, and I think uh, appropriately so if it's, a, if it's a government institution. But you still have uh, the, the families using those schools saying to particularly religious minorities, uh, you're welcome to have your own schools. But don't come asking us as a, a society to support your choices, but you, through your tax dollars, have to support our choice. Yes. That's, that's he, a fundamentally yeah. unfair system. He is Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice. Jason, I think that the title of your of your new book should be Religious Schools versus the State of New York because it does cover Christian schools and Muslim schools. Instead of calling it yeshivas versus the State of New York, I think you are incorrectly signaling to people who might be super interested in this book that it may not be for them. That is my two cents. I will give you that. I'm going to say, Bob, I'm going to push back. I love the title, Jason. And what okay. a what a moment to be to be publishing a book like this. So we'll all be watching the Espinosa case later. And and thank you for, you know, for walking us through this this history that so many, even in the what we would call ed reform, I think we're all starting to hate that word, but in the community don't don't know. So really instructive and really valuable. Thank you. Well, Jason. it is the it's the modern David and Goliath battle in education. And uh, thank you again for having me on the podcast. We'll see you soon. Take care. And that okay. was the great Jason Bedrick. Let's remind everybody that his Twitter handle is at Jason Bedrick. That's B-E-D-R-I-C-K. And this week's commentary of the week, um, at reading an article um, from Eric Hanushek in Education Next. And he, in this article, is talking about the profession of teaching, professionalizing teaching and winning the salary wars. Uh, so, I love this stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and he's great, right? So, but so. Let's, so you you made a claim earlier in this show, Bob, that you know that teachers in Chicago are making a lot of money. Now, in some places, that might right. be true. I think we have to consider <laughs> a lot of factors. But but in this article, 
Dr. Hanushek points out that teachers work on average, teachers on average are making 22% less than they could earn if they were outside of the profession. So looking at the credentials that most teachers have and the kind of money they could make if they chose to do a different job, he's saying that in fact, yes, teacher salaries are low, but he also points out the age old problem. So, well, you know, should we actually just universally give teachers a pay increase? Shouldn't it be based upon their effectiveness? And then of course, as we know, this opens up all of these questions about, oh, well, we can't evaluate teachers and oh, well, this is a really difficult problem. And he says we need to go back to what he calls the grand bargain. The grand bargain. I, that's what I love. Yeah. Rick Hanusek's grand bargain. Salaries. He's, he's great on this. And he says there'll be huge impacts on the economy if we go back to the grand bargain. As an economist, he's, he's modeled this. But he's saying, you know, it's hard to determine what effective teaching is. You can't just say, oh, this makes an effective teacher. We need to go back to performance evaluations with consequences if we're going to give increases to effective teachers, to retain them, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I love this argument, except we've seen that it doesn't usually work. So even in places, we'll point to a place like Denver, Colorado, where they've implemented teacher evaluation systems and tried to do some version of pay for performance. A couple different things happen. Sometimes just everybody gets rated as awesome. You're an awesome teacher. So we're not actually differentiating. We're not actually trying to figure out what makes an effective teacher. It's a very but, subjective but, but, thing. But, but, the, but the part of Rick's grand bargain that, I, that I'm attracted to is when he says, increases in student teacher ratios would go along could go along with higher teacher salaries so you have larger classrooms but you have better teachers who are paid more now the unions resist though that deal they want smaller across the board salary increases accompanied by more teacher total numbers in other words and so in other words the, the, spending new money on extra bodies boosts union dues. Spending extra money on higher salaries with no extra new bodies does not boost union dues. So that's Absolutely. Why we- but let's also admit that this is an economist's take, right? So there might be some great efficiencies in that, et cetera, but it could also ignore the reality that sometimes, now t- hold your breath, Bob, here, Sometimes the unions are right in that some children do need smaller class sizes, and we need to remember that. I would actually also just point out that I don't know that this solves for the greater problem of, number one, what what Ingersoll would call the status of the teaching profession and who we are ultimately attracting to the teaching profession. So raise more salaries, you're going to get better people. But I think we need a hard reset on the kind on, on thinking through how we more immediately start to attract better people to the profession. And yes, maybe then those better people can make higher salaries leading to better outcomes across the board. Rick has often argued if you just take if you were to actually just get rid of the worst five to ten percent of teachers, you could just increase the class sizes by just reassigning those students and you would have better education for less money or even just that give may, raises. That may be true and, in and some many some have even said if you if you fired the bottom half of quality of teachers and doubled all the class sizes, you would have the you would have no bad teachers anymore and that would improve I'm not saying I'm not for this, I am, but I think we need a multifaceted approach. And, and I will conclude by saying the fact that unions benefit by increasing bodies, but they don't benefit by increasing salaries is a simple and profound bit of math. I wish every education reporter and every school board member 
should be able to recite from memory. Like I had to learn Hamlet's speech in high school and studying Shakespeare. I want them to remember and be able to recite that unions only make more money by increasing the bodies. They don't make more money by increasing the salary. Dear listeners, on the next episode of The Learning Curve, Bob and Hamlet. I think we're on to the tweet of the week, my friend. That's right. Oh, so, oh, yeah. Oh, that. Yeah. So the tweet of the week is from Marilyn Muller, who, uh, by the way, we mentioned special needs before, slash dyslexia advocate. Marilyn Muller writes in a back and forth Twitter, uh, back and forth, and we'll have the link in the info on the podcast, but it says, wait, she's uh, discussing with someone else. She says, wait, you have two children in private school, but you're raging at us about saving public schools and our choices to remove our neurodiverse IDEA children from the public school over the abuse that that FAPE denied inflicts respectfully, isn't this the definition of hypocrite? So Marilyn Muller uh, uh, beefing with somebody else on the internet over uh, the subject of hypocrisy regarding uh, a person who allegedly has her own kids in private school, but then says for everybody else, public school should be just fine. So that concludes, that concludes episode 11, I think, uh, Kara. Episode 11. Episode great 11. being with you, Bob. Have a great week. Yeah, and so next week, a uh, Stephen Wilson. This will be a this will be a humdinger of a show. Episode twelve will be Stephen Wilson will be our guest. He's a recently terminated head of the Ascend Charter School. I can't wait for the Stephen Wilson interview. And I think that's all the time we have for now, Kara. Have a good one. 